chapter 13. It's so good to see so many out. I would love to greet you after this. It's good to see my good friend Noah Hickman in the back and Sandra. Noah's got such a heart for the Lord and served our church in a number of ways. I would love to shake your hand, but I'm going to be honest. My wife came down with COVID. We've been two years and have not had it, and uh, we came down with it. Uh, I have tested negative. I've tested two or three times. I'm obsessive, so I used about three of them. And last night I was negative, but according to CDC guidelines, for five days I keep the mask and try to keep distance. So I'm here after I preach. I'd love to shake your hand, but I'm going to be honest. I'm going to slip out the side door there. And that is good news for you because you don't have to worry about this meal coming up. I won't be there. You'll have plenty of food. You don't have to worry about uh, contracting anything from me, but uh, we're excited about that, and I hope you can stay, members, guests alike. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, if you'll turn there, we're going to be looking there in just a moment. I was reading this past week about uh, a particular event the great missionary Hudson Taylor's life. Hudson Taylor served as a missionary in China for 51 years. He founded the China Inland uh, Mission. He was one of the true great servants uh, of the Lord. And in this particular season of his ministry, he was interviewing prospects who would be going into the mission field. And he wanted to understand their heart, their aspirations. And so as he began to question them, he had a pertinent question that he asked, and it simply was this, why do you feel that you should go into the foreign mission field? And there were a lot of good answers. One said, because Christ has commanded us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Another replied, millions are perishing without Christ who have never heard the word and they need to hear. And those were two great answers. There were probably a handful of, another, of other answers that were uh, very similar. But at that moment, Taylor stopped uh, the candidates and he said, all of these motives you have mentioned, however good they are, will fail you in times of testing, trials, tribulation, and even death. He said there is only one one motive that will keep you on the field to the very end. And he quoted 2 Corinthians 5, 14a, for the love of Christ constrains us. Now that love of Christ, if you know from your English language, it could mean two things. Our love for Christ or Christ's love for us. Uh, I believe it's what's called the objective genitive, which is this. It's a of that means Christ's love for us. It is Christ's love that compels us. We're looking at one of the most familiar uh, yet often misunderstood chapters in all of the Bible. And as we look to what is familiarly known as the love chapter, I want us to understand today it's not the love that we contrive that allows us to be able to be pleasing to God, but it is our yielding ourselves to him and the love of Christ that will compel us because good intentions will fail us. Our own love may also fall short. Our desire to obey God 
is not going to be perfect. I'm reminded of the words to that familiar hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, where the, the writer of the song says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the one I love. And so as we look at uh, the love chapter today, let us understand in the spirit of what Hudson Taylor said, there's not some self-contrived love that Paul is talking about here, but it is the love that is best exemplified in Christ and is the love of which God himself is the source. The scripture tells us that God is love, that we love because he first loved us. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 13. Paul writes, if I speak in uh, the tongues of men or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to, to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, it is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, as we read these familiar words, words I'm certain that each of us has heard before, I pray, Lord, that you would speak afresh today as we look at living life in community. Father, we're to embody the love of Christ. We are to exude that love. And Father, as the preacher here today, as I speak on behalf of this congregation, Lord, we cannot in and of ourselves love as we ought to love. But, Father, we know that the love of Christ that is shown in our hearts can come forth, and we pray that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, the context for this message, if you've not been with us, uh, beginning a few weeks ago, we started about the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll be continuing at least for the next couple of weeks into 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And the subject matter we've been discussing is life in community. How do we live in the life of the church? How are we to conduct ourselves? And we have looked at various situations, everything uh, from headdressing in the congregation uh, to issues like what types of food to eat, in all of these matters, but really um, beneath all of this discussion is how we are to live in community. And here we come to the apex, really, of uh, this series of messages as Paul takes an entire chapter to discuss the issue of love. And he set the table, as we saw last week, 
at the end of 1 Corinthians 12. There in verse 31, rather, uh, Paul says, but desire earnestly the greater gifts. And then he stops and he says, but I will show you an even greater way. So after discussing in chapter 12, all of the ministries, all of the gifts that he discussed, as he looked at that in the entirety of chapter 12, he compares all of those, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, all of those things, and he says if you were to weigh them on a scale, they would pale in comparison to love. Now that says a lot to a church we see that was struggling with competition. Uh, various individuals had certain gifts. They were jealous over others who may have had what they considered to be better gifts. Uh, others were taking pride in their own abilities. And Paul, in effect, is saying here, you have it all wrong. There's a song uh, in contemporary Christian music that came out in about 2019, and I like to listen to it. It's just a simple song written by a man who was formerly a youth minister but now has become an acclaimed uh, contemporary Christian artist. His name is Danny Gokey. I believe he still serves as a youth minister. And the title of his song is Love God and Love People. And one part of the song goes like this. It says, no more complicating things, as he's singing about himself, no more need to overthink, got to keep it real simple because it all comes down to this, love God and love people. What he says is all of these things that we strive to do, everything that we strive to do in ministry, all of our gifts, when it all comes down to it, what really matters is we're to love God and love people. Well, that's the great command that Jesus gave. He said that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so this morning, we're going to look at this subject of love, and I want to divide the look really into three parts. The first two parts, we'll look at this particular chapter. First, the characteristics of love in verses 4 through 7. Then the surpassing excellence of love in verses 1 through 3 and 8 through 13. And then the third point brings it all home as we see the supreme example of love. You know, love may be the most overused and misrepresented word in the English language. True love is more than an emotion. It's more than doing something for someone because we have a feeling. It's more than desire. In fact, as we look at true love, many people put conditions on their love, and that's not true love. Some people will say, I love you if, or I love you when, and that's really a misuse of the word love. You know, there uh, are more than just one word in the Greek language for love. There's the word eros, which speaks to sensual or desirous type of love, which speaks to an affection one may have towards someone. Then there's the word philia. That's the word that we translate brotherly love, and that is a love shared between people who have a common standing or understanding. It is the love depicted in the church that we as brothers and sisters in Christ are to have love for one another. But there's a third word that is used, and that is the word agape. And it's the word that Paul uses here. You're familiar with it. You know where I'm going with this. This isn't uh, elementary stuff. This is stuff that we understand, that, that we have 
experienced before. It is a sacrificial love. It is a love that gives itself totally, a love that is concerned with the well-being of its object. And that's the love that Paul is speaking about here. And it is also the love that is to compel us, that is to catapult us in the ministries of the church. Well, what characterizes this love? I tried to enumerate, and I ran out of fingers. In verses 4 through 7, there are 15 traits that are listed. That's more, I tried to put them in numbers first, then I put them in letters. And once I got beyond halfway through the 26 letters, I said, I've got to condense this, at least for my own understanding. And so as I look at these 15 attributes, there are really four uh, groups of these 15 uh, that I want to look at. And the first is this, love is strong even when it's challenged. Love is strong even when it is challenged. You know, one of the great disservices of the many disservices Hollywood has done for our nation is this. It has elevated young love. Young love. You go to a movie, you don't see very often two 90-year-old people that are in love. You see young people that are in love, and they sensationalize that. But you know what real love is? Real love is old love. Real love is the love that is a love of commitment that stands not just in the good times, but stands in the difficulties. One of the greatest testaments in the church today are individuals who have lived long enough and been married 50 plus years, even 40 plus years. That is a testimony of true love. And that is the type of love that Paul is speaking about here. It is a love that endures all seasons. Notice what it says here. Paul says, love is patient. That word patient combines two Greek words, macro thumia. Macro, you know, micro is small, macro is big. And what it means is it stands in big, tough times. It is a patient type of love. Notice what it says in verse 5. It is not irritable. In other words, it's not easily riled up or stirred up by the actions of the object of that love. Both of these speak not to a Hollywood type of love where everything is emotionally built, but it focuses on a love that works itself out through difficulties. We don't like that, do we? We like the easy, don't we? I don't know about you. I like the easy path, but love will be tested in difficulty. That's why near the end of the list in verses 4 through 7, it says love endures all things. Now, often when we think of love, we don't think of enduring. And husbands, your wife probably doesn't want you to think that you're enduring her. That's not what I mean here. But what it means is this. It presses on through difficulties. But I want you to see a second truth in these list of 15. Love is forgiving. People will let you down. Guess what? They will. I will let you down. Your best friend will let you down. And sometimes one of the most difficult things we can do is when we go through this experience, someone we greatly love lets us down, and it hurts us to the core. But love is forgiving. Some people say, I will forgive, but I won't forget. 
And I want to stop and say, okay, I understand what you're saying there, but I'm glad God isn't toward you that way. The scripture says that he's put our sins behind his back, that in here, what does it speak of? It speaks the truth that keeps no record of wrong. And so love is forgiving. Notice what it does say there in verse 5. It tells us in this particular verse after it says it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable. And then at the end of verse 5, my translation, it reads, it does not keep a record of wrongs. Are you seeing a pattern here? We're talking about love and there's really not any emotion that's mentioned here. It talks about enduring. It talks about forgiving, not keeping a record of wrong, all of this. There's no Hollywood type of love here. Literally, the end of verse 5 means this. Love does not charge to another person's account a wrongdoing. When I thought about that, I thought about Joseph. Remember Joseph, Mary's uh, espoused to be husband. When, when he found out that she was pregnant, before he understood fully that she was with child by the Holy Spirit, what did he decide to do? To protect her to protect her, not to bring shame to her. He didn't try to uh, bring it out and, and draw attention because he loved her. He sought to protect her. And that is really the idea in verse 7 of it bears all things. The idea of bearing something is covering over something. Now, we love to cover over our own wrongdoings, don't we? And we just say, well, it was just a mess up. But it's not talking about how we deal with ourselves but it covers up others' offenses. So love is forgiving. It is bearing all things. It doesn't keep record of wrong. But we see a third truth. Love is self-abrogating, which is just a big word to say love is not about itself. It's others-focused. The picture I give you is this. You come to a door. Someone uh, who is about your age, uh, same life uh, season as you're in, there's no reason for you to hold the door for that individual. It's not that he is older or younger or whatever. And yet you at Common Ground meet at the door. You step, you take the door, you say you go first, and then you follow in. That's the picture of self-abrogating love. What it is is it puts others before self. In fact, Paul writes the church at Philippi in chapter 2, right in the midst of that great Christological uh, passage of Christ emptying himself, becoming a servant and dying for our sins, and then the Father lifting him up, that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But in the midst of that, he's talking to the church at Philippi, and he's saying, be like Christ. And in that context, he says, each member should not look to his or her own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, if you looked at your bulletin this morning and you saw 1 Corinthians 13, probably the first thing you thought about was marriage. I would say more than half of the marriages that I've attended or officiated have had 1 Corinthians 13. And as I think back, that's probably a good thing because I'm going to be honest, I've been married for over 30 years, and one of the greatest tests of love is in the home with the spouse. I think my wife's doing better than I'm doing. But in the original context, it wasn't written about marriage. 
it's written about life in the church, where we are now. Because in 1 Corinthians 12, right before this, what is he speaking about? Ministries in the church. He's speaking about gifts in the church. What was happening? Uh, there were some, and he talked about the ear and the eye and the hand and the foot. There were some that were saying, we don't need you. We're more important than you. There were others that were saying, I want what he has. I want, the foot says, I want to do what the hand does. And so as we look at the context here, it deals with life in community. Not just in the home, and it's to begin there, but how we deal with others at work. And sometimes we deal with difficult people at work. Sometimes it's very hard. We have to bite our lip. Sometimes and many times we go home and we pray, Lord, help me to endure this person, endure this situation. But guess what? People are watching. People are watching how you conduct yourself in community. It just happens. I, I have probably counseled or talked with two or three people this week. You know what? Uh, they were sharing with me their perceptions of how people have dealt in a community situation. And so you may say, well, I hear what you're saying, Rick. I want to be more loving. Guess what? You can't be more loving. You need the love of Christ in you. You need to yield yourself. You need to say, Lord, love through me. So love is self-abrogating. It's not about self. Uh, it says it's not boastful. It's not arrogant. That's what it says in verse 4. Boastful is simply put this. It's not you telling others how great you are. And it's not arrogant. It means you're not telling yourself how great you are. In other words, you're looking at yourself sober-mindedly. It's not self-seeking. What a great witness it would be if we as a church would possess these qualities. It doesn't envy. We saw that last week. Remember the parts of the body. One envious over the other. We're, we're not thinking of the church when we do that. We're lifting ourselves up. We see a fourth category. Love is kind. You know, sometimes we look at kind as being a pansy word. It's not. It does mean good-natured or benevolent. It means gentle, not rude. I tell you, I, I don't like rude people. You probably don't either. We, we call to love them, but we don't like them. But we need to make sure we're not one by the, by the grace of God. And so love is kind. It doesn't rejoice in evil. That's what it says in verse 6. In other words, not only does it not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it doesn't rejoice in something bad happening to someone else. But it rejoices in the truth. It rejoices in the good things. Love is positive. It believes all things. Jesus was kind and gentle, yet the strongest individual to walk the face of this earth. Love is kind and gentle. Well, let's look secondly, real quickly, the surpassing excellence of love. As I said, Paul has just spent a lot of time writing in chapter 12 about the various ministries and gifts of the church. We talked about how some of those gifts did not exist today. The gift of prophecy was given early. There are no prophets today in the way I understand the Bible to define it. A prophet brings new revelation. Guess where our revelation is? Right here. We don't add to it. We don't add to it. This is the word of God. All right? Some people may use the word prophet. I would say that person doesn't have a new revelation. That person has maybe a renewed inspiration 
but the source and the authority is the word of God. When, when Paul was writing these words, it makes sense. The canon, the completion of scripture had not come yet at this point. And so there were individuals who were given special revelation of the Lord and they were able to prophesy. Now, I realize some people today may use the word prophet <coughs> in a different way than I'm using it. And if they explain that and they're okay, I'm just saying my understanding of it. And I think if two of us sat down on that, we would all agree the word of God is the authority. The word of God is the authority. And so what we see happening in chapter 12, there were prophets, there were people who spoke in tongues. There was just discombobulation. There was disorientation and there was disorder in the church. And the reason there was disorder was because everyone was focused on their ministry and not love. They were obsessed over their gifts. They, wanted, they felt like, if I can possess this gift, it boosts my esteem. I'm something. I'm important in the church. And Paul is saying, wait a minute. Your priorities are wrong. Rather than pouring yourself into trying to cultivate all of these gifts that are given by God himself, why don't you work on something that's more important, and that's love? I want to look at how love exceeds the gifts, and there are two ways. First, in its essence, in its very being. Going back to the discussion of 1 Corinthians 12, we see he begins 13 by speaking in verse 1 about tongues. He said, I can, have t I can speak in tongues, but if I don't have love, I'm a gong or a clanging cymbal. You know, I love the cymbals uh, in marching bands, but the cymbals don't just go off on their own. They have to fit in the rest of the piece. If it's just a, uh, after long, if somebody were to just do like this, before long we'd say, I've got to get out of this place. This is driving me crazy. And so he says, if, if, if you're speaking in tongues, and he was speaking to the early church there, if you're doing that and you don't have, law, uh, you don't have love, it gets on people's nerves. It's ineffective. Verse, verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all ministries, in other words, if, if I have a word from the Lord, if I understand all ministries, I consider that discernment. And there are people in the church that have discernment. They, ha they can understand things and all knowledge in all faith, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And so verse 1 speaks of the spectacular gifts, that of tongue. Verse 2 speaks of the gifts of knowledge, and he says, whatever they are, without love, they're nothing. In other words, the spiritual gift or ministry minus love is nothing, but follow this. Love minus the ministry and spiritual gift is everything. Chew on that for a moment. Everything we do should be do done with the love motive. And God can take any one of us if we have love in our hearts. And I'm not speaking about emotional love. I'm speaking about the love of Christ through us. God will do great things through it. What a, what a great testimony would be if we as a church would be known as a church compelled 
by the love of Christ. Verse 3, he mentions people who would sacrifice their possessions, who would give up their body, martyrs. And they could do all of that, give their life on the stake, and have nothing. How could that be? Because their motive would have been wrong. So it's greater in essence, but it's also greater in extent. That is, it lasts eternally. Love never ends. He says prophecies, they'll cease. Tongues, they'll cease. And we're going to see in just a moment how he speaks about knowledge. Knowledge as we have it today will not be worth a whole lot. It lasts. A lot of us, we've been working on our retirement savings for years. If you're moving toward retirement, these are not good days. <laughs> I was talking with somebody the other day about it. They started to share with me how much they lost, and I began to get depressed. <laughs> and I was thinking, man, I'm glad I got a few years before my retirement. Maybe this thing will change. We put a lot of time in that. We put a lot of time in making a name for ourselves. But you know what? It's all for nothing if it's about us. People will forget us. I can go back to my hometown just 30 years removed, and somebody will say, who's that guy? Place where I grew up. They forget you quickly. But love lasts forever. All other things are like sandcastles at low tide. When the tide rises, it all fails. Even the, even the gifts, that's what he's saying here. Even gifts, they're used in the church they won't last. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Both of those deal with knowledge. In other words, one who is prophesying could only prophesy the knowledge God gave that individual. And so he's saying we know in part and we prophesy in part. In other words, it's just in part. It's partial. It's not complete. And then in verse 10, he says this. But when the perfect comes, the partial will end. In other words, when the perfect comes, when we're in heaven, we'll, be, we'll know even as we have been known. In other words, what he's saying there is these things that they were striving, the gifts, all of that would not last. It's like the payphone. What was the last payphone you saw? You don't hear a lot of songs today about a payphone. All right, payphones have gone the way. The newspaper, probably the next five, I love to visit my mom. She still gets a printed newspaper. But five or ten years from now, there probably won't be printed newspaper. All of these things, they come and go. The gifts, they come and go. But love endures forever. Verses 11 and 12, real quickly. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. He speaks of the difference between childhood and adulthood. A child thinks in concrete terms. You tell a child something in an abstract level, and they'll take you literally, and they'll totally miss the point. Uh, an adult is able to process more information. That's why we don't share certain difficult parts of information with a child because the child cannot grasp it. 
So he said, when I was a child, I thought the way a child, but when I'm an adult, I put away childish things. In other words, knowledge, all of these gifts that they were striving for, they were like the childish things, not childish in the negative sense, but they were the less developed thing. There's coming a time when we get to heaven when those things won't be needed. Verse 12, for now we see only in a reflection as a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will be then I will know fully as I'm fully known. Uh, the idea is comparing looking in a mirror to looking at someone face to face. Now we need to understand contextually here, mirrors in that day weren't like these beautiful ones we have in our bathrooms uh, today. They were basically shiny, uh, silvery metal that you could see dimly, but not an accurate representation. What is he saying there? All of these gifts to which you're striving. It's not that they're bad. They have their place, but there's something that's more important. So he's saying this, while tongues, knowledge, prophecy, all of these things are temporal, love will always be. And so it matters in this. We ought to be applying ourselves to the things that last forever. And that is love. We ought to be growing in our love. We ought to pray, Lord, make me a more loving person at work in the church in the home. And with that, we, we close with our, our final point, our example of love, Jesus Christ. Last night, I was struggling, sleeping. I don't know why. I guess, well, my wife's in one part of the house, and I'm in another. That doesn't help. I've been known to be the, uh, the uh, COVID Nazi, I guess. I don't even know. But anyway, uh, we, we're in separate parts. But uh, had a lot on my mind, different things, and uh, and the devil began to hit me hard. You know where, where he goes. This is a chapter, when you read it, it sounds so beautiful when it's read at a wedding. The problem is when you stop and read over and over again verses 4 through 7, it can be very painful. It can be painful. And so as I preach to you today, I preach as someone striving toward this compelling love that Christ places in me, not as an authority, but guess what? I don't have to be an authority. We have the authority, Jesus. He's the authority. Look at Jesus at the four categories we look. Strong even when challenged. He went all the way to Calvary for you and for me. He, he endured all of the opposition of the religious leaders, all of the attacks of Satan from the beginning of his ministry after he was baptized, driven into the wilderness, to the night before he died in the garden when he was sweating drops of blood, his love was strong even when challenged. The second point we looked at, love is forgiving. Even when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the very perpetrators of his death he was praying to the Father in one of his last seven recorded saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus is forgiving. Self-sacrificing. Jesus said and did so. He said, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he was kind. This warrior, God in the flesh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, was also a gentle lamb. He yielded his life for us. If we want to be more loving, we ought to be like Jesus. In closing, God is love, but he's even more than that. 
God is love, but love is not God. Think about that. That's true. God is love, but love is not God. God is love, and he's greater than love. I thought about the number two in the even numbers. Two is an even number, but the set of even numbers is far greater than just the number two. God is love, but he is far greater than love. In fact, God's two greatest qualities are his holiness and love. That's my opinion. He's holy. He's separate from us. He's love. He's all loving toward us. And do you realize that where those two attributes of God met were at Calvary, where the holiness of God, the demanded payment for sin, met the love of God as God himself in the flesh offered himself for us. And so when we read 2 Corinthians 5.14 and we read uh, 1 Corinthians 13 in light of that, we read the love of Christ constrains us. Think about that for a moment. The love that met the holiness of God at Calvary, if you're a believer, dwells in you. It's a matter of dying to self and yielding yourself that that love of Christ would compel you. And when that happens, our marriages will be different, our churches will be different, the workplaces will be different. Let's pray. Father, as we've looked to your word today, this chapter that is so familiar, yet as we read it, so profound. Lord, it's our desire to be more loving in our homes, more loving in our churches, more loving in the workplace. But Father, it's tough. We'll leave here today and we'll experience We'll experience that challenge probably before we put our head down on the pillow tonight in some way. But, Lord, may the love of Christ compel us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kemper is going to be standing uh, at the front to receive any.